1: PlushCare.com slash weightloss.
2: Hello and welcome to the new European podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Jerry Scott. Hiya. And Steve Anglesey. Hello. Later, we're going to be joined by a special guest, Clive Lewis, Labour MP, is going to be talking Europe, and we will also crown our Brexiteer of the Week. But first, let's get to the news. Um, Steve, you're increasingly concerned about our Foreign Secretary.
0: Yes, it's a worrying term, isn't it? Uh, this is off the back of a, uh, a piece in the Times, uh, which, which said that Boris Johnson was at a low, allies of his... Um, are, uh, are saying that he's at a low uh, in the cabinet. He's refusing to engage uh, with other ministers. He's been excluded from key conversations. Uh, it wouldn't be a surprise if he resigned, some people are saying. Uh, it would be very pleasant if he resigned. But it wouldn't be a surprise <laughs> if he resigned. And what I particularly like is, is that he is, has resorted to sending what is de- what described as bizarre notes to Theresa May. Now before we start, <laughs> I know where you. Are. I can see on your little cheeky well. face, <laughs> not one for the listeners, but it's not, not like that, not those kind of notes, although I'm sure, you know,
1: we, in mind we, what
0: we know about Boris. Can we be sure Yeah, that they're not? They're
2: a little... In 30 years they will be released, won't we? So we will find out probably what Boris
0: has been sending to Well two, he's been man? he's been setting down his red lines right in a, in a <laughs> in not a man <laughs> renowned for red lines. Not really, he? no, no. But maybe to... they're red lines in a sort of a fifty shades of grey style. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, um, so Boris is sending in bizarre notes to Theresa May, which obviously then Theresa May is, is shown to the rest of the cabinet, and uh, and we know that they say things like um, any transitional period um, must only last one year, which is not the the most sexy line he's ever used. Is it?
2: Uh, well, perhaps not. Um, I'm lucky not to have. Um not to have got any of uh, Boris's late-night emails. Uh, do, what, Jerry, though, uh, Boris doesn't really strike me as the type of chap that would resign. What do you think?
3: No, not not kind of on the face of it, is it? But it's really weird because he's been really quiet over like, the last month or so, um, which, as we all recognise, is really odd for Boris. But he's not having a good time of it, is he? His Tory supporters don't like him very much at the moment... Some MPs don't like him very much at the moment, and there was um, there was a report the other day that a quarter of Brexit voters don't like him either. So, so, does anyone still like Boris?
2: Well, Boris will still like Boris, and that is what makes me think that he would be planning some kind of comeback. Steve, what do you think he has to do
0: to uh, to, to get the uh, grassroots back on his side? Well, he's got a he's he's got an uphill struggle, hasn't he? I mean, there was another. There was another poll this week wasn't there of people who'd who'd voted leave and a quarter of them said that they now felt that they'd been misled by the leave yeah. campaign. So that is 4.3 extrapolated to 4.3 million people in the country mm. who think that Boris Johnson and Michael Gove lied to them which mm. as we know they did. They did lie to them. So that is difficult. I wonder whether this some of this is genuine, whether this is Boris Johnson um, you know, making it known that he disagrees with the way things are going, that he could run it better, and he is positioning himself as a, uh, a you know, a one-man awkward squad in in the the, the cabinet, and, and you know, positioning himself as a, a an anti-Teresa May leadership bid. There was an interesting quote in the Times piece, which I think was fascinating and probably would have got greater play uh, in the newspaper and at large had it not been for the the, the, the awful uh, uh, tragedy in, in Barcelona around the same time that this ran but there was an interesting thing that the cabinet source had said that he was basically the only one who was refusing to sing from the same hymn sheet the only one who was refusing to engage and agree this kind of stuff yeah which is obviously problematic for for a a cabinet well it certainly is yeah yeah it's funny that you know boris has been the as he stumbles around australia in these places he has been the one telling people to Stop moaning and groaning," he said the other day. "Didn't he moaning and droning and yeah. talking about a collective windger armour among Remainers and uh, and now he's having a a one man windger armour in the cabinet." Yeah, and we, we we spoke about
2: what Theresa May needed to do with her cabinet last week, um, and it, it seems that Boris might be might be a, 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 a looming problem, if not one already. Um, we've got more proposal papers. I think this is it's exciting, isn't it? Every week we wait for these papers. It's like, to like arrive. isn't it? yeah. <laughs> Steve, you think that the um, the interesting bits on the ECG is a
0: climb-down. Just explain that for me. We said it, it was made very clear, wasn't it, by the, uh, the, the Prime Minister and, and the Brexiteers that we would have nothing more to do with the European Court of, of Justice. Uh, there is now a climb-down... Um, uh, I mean, the government are still portraying it as we are, we'll no longer be under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, but it's fairly clear that what they have said about dispute resolution uh, systems which involve um, involve the EU, uh, there is going to be some interplay between European uh, justices and british justices and that is still to be worked out so that is a big climb down from uh, from where they were before i think you know i actually think that you could portray this as the government have climbed down the government are therefore in chaos the government are shambles or you could say that this is a a, a welcome uh, a welcome move for the for the government and they've realized that how ridiculous their their stance was um because they really can't do anything without involving european judges in some way um so i think that i think that is a good thing the other thing that is interesting that's come out of these position papers which we are which we're only just going through is um the goods on the market uh stuff um, and the big sticking point there seems to be that we are saying that if a UK, a product that's been made in the UK has already been approved by the EU, we don't have to seek approval for it again. So if, if the EU have said this car is safe to be sold in the European Union uh, pre-Brexit, we don't have to submit it again post-Brexit. Now, the EU have said from the start that isn't going to happen and you're going to have to resubmit everything and we're going to have to check it all and um uh, and and so that is a sticking point but I wonder whether the EU will give on that yeah but, um, but of course the you know the central thing in all of this is that they can put out as many we said this last week they can put out as many position papers as they want and they want to get on to trade it's quite clear and they want to wrap up a trade thing quite quickly and then move on to the timetable to for, uh, to to the countdown to to March uh, of 2019 but they are not going to be able to talk about any of this. The EU isn't going to engage with them on any of this yeah. until they give on the Irish border, the divorce bill, and the status of the EU citizens in the UK. And they are going to have to. There's going to have to be so many more climb downs, much yeah. bigger than the ECJ climb down, if they want to start talking about this.
2: The the thing that strikes me as well with the ECJ and Dominic Rab. Spoke this morning. I mean, this—they're still doing the old government line with taking back control, and yeah. we will be—you know—we we will no longer be uh, under the jurisdiction of the of the court. But there's also, I mean, clearly, if we want to be close to the EU and we want to do trade with them, we're going to pretty much have to mirror what the what the court is doing. Jerry, it seems like they're saying one thing to the leavers to keep them happy. Uh, but actually, they're maybe taking a softer stance. Do you agree? Yeah, with-
3: yeah, I do. And it's this whole taking back control thing that was a big part of the Leave campaign, wasn't it? Take back control of our borders. Take back control of our laws. Let's not have these foreign judges and foreign courts lording it over us type um, type language. But, you know, you've got legal experts saying we're going to have to follow ECJ rulings if we're going to be close to the single market and customs union and then in these position papers, it's saying that we're in a position of strength to move towards our own arrangements. It's, to me, it looks like another example of why do we think we're so special that we can carve our own path and not kind of follow everyone's, everyone's rules? It's a bit of arrogance, isn't it? You know, yeah. You've know, you got former Attorney General Dominic Grieve saying that we can't escape the influence of the um, ECJ. It's, it's it, taking back control, but are we really? <laughs>
2: Well, it's, it, it seems like they just think if they can, if they say it enough, people will believe it. I mean, yeah, lots but it's not of... <laughs>
3: necessarily what's going to happen, is it? Yeah,
2: I think there might be quite a few disappointed leavers um, uh, in in the coming years. But that's
3: time after time, isn't it? It's about, uh, these, you know, hard lines that there's climb down after climb down. Vince Cable said that the red lines were becoming more blurred by the day, and I think that's completely true.
0: Yeah, and and the you know and uh, again there is in the in the fantasy of a No Deal and we walk away straight away, which is the ultimate taking back of control. We are not in a position to take back control. How are we in, in a position to take back control of our our own borders and our and our own trade when we've got none of the. You know, have we hired a, a huge amount of, of people to work on passport control? Is there, is there, a, you know, are all of these things in place? Of course they're not. We're not in a position to to, to have a, a no-deal Brexit, and that seems to be being taken off the table and now of, anyway. Of
3: course, the final thing is is that we're taking ourselves away from the discussion table. We'll have no influence into this, this input, into how things are formed yeah. once we're out, well, yet it, it's still going to be influencing us.
2: So actually, Jerry, we're losing control. Absolutely. What were you doing at midday on Monday? Sobbing uncontrollably. Yeah. Jerry, what about you?
3: I was in the back of an ambulance, actually. Oh. <laughs> for for a story. Yeah, for Professional
2: reasons. For <laughs> Professional reasons. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad that you. It was for professional reasons and nothing more. I too was was head bowed, um, yeah. in Parliament Square for the for the last bongs. Uh, it's such a nonsense, isn't it?
3: Mad. It's absolutely <laughs> mad. The Mail front page quoted Labour MP saying that the Luftwaffe couldn't stop Big Ben bonging, but health and safety could. What yeah. a quote that is.
2: There's been some great bong headlines, actually. Yes, there um, have. In fact, I, I only this morning wrote "Going, Going, Bong." Steve, is this just one of those? It's just a silly season story with a political twist,
0: isn't it? I mean, well, yeah. I mean, it's look, look. I mean, the notion that this is part of that. that Stopping, shutting down the bongs of, of the of Big Ben in the Westminster Tower is is part of a campaign to unpick the traditions and the heritage of, of which make Britain Britain. is it, absolute fantasy, isn't yeah. it? It's a fantasy that is shared by, you know, the, 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 Paul Dacre and other tinfoil helmet wearing uh, <laughs> people. Um, who, who you know look back to, to, to some mystical golden age of britain which never existed uh, or um, or was quite sinister if it did exist this this really like paul dacre this is really is an old clock which needs a good clean isn't it <laughs> um and when you look at you know when you look at Things like, look, so, so I was in New York a few years ago and MoMA was shot, the Museum of Modern Art, which is an iconic New York building. It's one of the most iconic. It was, MoMA was shot for nearly three years, I think. The centre of Boston, another place that I visited while this was happening and then since it has happened, um, was, was disrupted by a thing called the Big Dig, for twenty-five years. Yeah. They you know the, the middle of Boston was basically a building site for about twenty-five years and people just got on with it because they went, when it comes back, it will be better and it yeah. will preserve the life of it. And when you go to Boston now, it's an immeasurably more beautiful city than it was. Because of that big hole. Because of that great big <laughs> hole, they put everything that was unpleasant in it and then just covered <laughs> it over. Um and the transport, well while it's not great, is much better. The new MOMA is is much better than the old MOMA. Yeah. So but
2: Theresa May is waded into this nonsense argument, hasn't she, and, and saying that it's surely not right that Big Ben should be silenced for four years.
3: What would she rather do? That the people who have gone in to do this work lose their hearing for the, you know, for the good of the country? Send,
2: sending the deaf.
3: <laughs> Absolutely, we could
0: deaf ones. That would be my solution.
3: <laughs> <don't> <laughs> yeah. But two. is she an
0: expert? Sort of. I don't know. Is a horologist? <laughs> is is she an expert in the the administration of of <laughs> cleaning enormous bells. We're back to Boris uh, now, aren't we? And his emails <laughs> certainly wouldn't like to comment.
3: There are two absolutely mad things that have come out of this kind of debacle that have really made me laugh. The first was um, there was a little girl on um this morning bless her on their doing an impression of big ben eamon holmes just absolutely loved and was encouraging it i just thought that was absolutely mental um and then the, the second one was a bit of satire that's gone around on the internet that they were going to rename big ben massive muhammad um and everyone believed it and so many people believed it and were absolutely outraged and it's just that kind of getting outraged at absolutely anything regardless of the fact that it's obviously not true or a big deal that um Actually makes me despair here.
2: So that's not true then.
3: It's not true. <laughs> 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 well, you were the one sharing it. He was yeah. outraged. Ah. He was
0: scandalised. <laughs> yes. and radicalised. It would be good to hear what people would like to replace the the bongs of Big Ben with. Yes. The uh, you know uh, the opening chord of a hard day's night the little crash of <laughs> ding, the crash of guitars is that is similar in duration I believe to to one bong of big Ben and we could just play that um, <laughs> and that would add to the gaiety of the nation considerably or Michael Gove saying that people in this country <laughs> have had enough of experts every 15 <laughs> <50 laughs> minutes just to be reminded what an enormous d- Michael gove
2: chaps thank you very much
3: stay angry fight brexit. Subscribe to The New European. Your first 13 issues of The New European are only £13 when you join us and become a subscriber. Order by telephone by calling 01858 438840 and quoting Podcast One, or order online at our website www.neweuropean.co.uk. Stay angry. Fight Brexit. Subscribe to The New European.
2: Welcome back. I'm joined now by Clive Lewis, the uh, Labour MP for Norwich South, also a former Shadow Business Secretary and Shadow Defence Secretary. Clive, welcome and thank you.
1: Hello, Richard. Good to be here.
2: Our listeners time and again have told us on social media and and even have written in and said they're confused about Labour's position on Brexit. Can can you try and explain it to us? Uh,
1: No. (laughs) It's a long shot of it. I... I, I, can you, I guess the question is, can you um, define the government's role on Brexit? And apart from the fact that we know they want some kind of cliff edge, we mm-hmm. don't quite know the, the exact trajectory they're going to take.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, it's it's going to be bad, but it's still a trajectory, it's a trajectory of a cliff edge. Um, and I think one of the problems for the Labour Party is that it's, it's, it's allowed them to call the shots and then it's tried to match accordingly. So it constantly changes. But if you've got a government that is heading off a cliff edge... And you're kind of matching them in opposition. You, you you still might end up going off the cliff edge yourself, it's just mm. a different trajectory. Yeah. Which is how I feel our policy has kind of evolved, and it has. But this is the thing we were talking about it just before we came on air. Um, we're dealing with a future event, a very cataclysmic potential future event, uh, which means that everything is speculation. Mm. And as you know, as hopes, dreams, and nightmares meet reality, as this unfolds you begin to see different shifts and different moves and that's been that's been the the kind of um the hymn of the last kind of 6 months constant changes you've just heard you know another change now on potentially on the European Court of Justice and yeah. its jurisdiction over uh, the UK post Brexit constantly changing as as ministers and civil servants come up against the reality of what Brexit actually means as opposed to the fantasy of what people Sold us misleadingly during the referendum campaign and afterwards mm.
2: well you've been very brave, of course, in you left the front bench over article 50 mm. you've been pretty outspoken with regards to uh, within the party about your stance on on Europe. Do you think that there's other people that have got very similar beliefs to you or maybe keeping a bit quiet about it and towing that party line?
1: I don't think I have been that vocal. I think I've kept my head down, to
2: maybe. be honest. <laughs> maybe
1: in some ways. I mean, obviously, I mean, well, designing leaving the...
2: the <laughs> leaving the front of the bench is a... Yeah,
1: seat. okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah, okay, maybe that's not keeping your head down. Um, I think it's what's made this difficult. There's a couple of things that have made this difficult. First of all, I'm a Jeremy Corbyn loyalist. Yeah. Um, and I'm a socialist. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in, in living in, in, my, in my life, in my political life, there is a, a real possibility of a socialist government um, coming to power in the United Kingdom. And I don't want to see that jeopardised. Mm. Uh, and there's so many things that need to happen, need to change in this country. Um, but I see Brexit as, the, as a kind of something that's looming over that and, and for those hopes and ambitions. But the problem is for a lot of people, so many people on the left who are pro-European and who voted for Remain also want to see a Jeremy Corbyn government. And they're terrified that if they speak out against... Uh, the position that, the, that some in the shadow cabinet and the party have taken on this, that it will somehow undermine that. But I guess for me and for a growing number of people, uh, there's a realisation that actually all the good things that you, a Jeremy Corbyn government, could achieve will be fundamentally undermined by a hard Tory Brexit crashing out. They'll they'll smash the car. They'll they'll get out the car. Throw the keys up in the air to Jeremy Corbyn. Walk away and say, sort that out. Here, here's, you know, get your socialism out of that wreck. Yeah. And and that, to me, is, my, is the big danger. And there's going to be such high expectation for a future incoming Labour government that if you have a wrecked or failing economy, um, or an underperforming economy at best, then that's going to make those things far more difficult, which would be difficult even at the best of times. Mm. Um, I think the other thing as well is many of the so-called moderates in the Labour Party have consistently used the issue of Europe, whether it be the result of the referendum and the subsequent so-called chicken coup Mm. um, and a number of other other things afterwards to basically attack the left, attack Jeremy Corbyn. And I think that does make it difficult for people like me who are passionate Europeans to kind of jump on that bandwagon. And I think also as well, you've got the, the situation where much of the kind of post-referendum um, Remain campaign has been, I think, very shrill. It's been very kind of you mad people. What have you done? Mm. Um, it, it's and it's also been very technocratic and and um, been done in the courts, been done through legislation. You know, it's it's not something which has kind of captured the imagination uh, of a, a groundswell of people on the ground and. It still it feels it feels like a group of people on social media, in the courts and a handful of people in parliament kind of waving their fist at the referendum result. Actually, what you need to do and I think where a lot of people on the left are very comfortable and perhaps more comfortable than those on the centre or the right is in grassroots campaigning to try and win people over doorstep by doorstep you know, campaigns, rallies, getting people to really get behind these arguments. And I think there's a place for the left in that. Yeah. Uh, and I know that a lot of the trade union officials and people on the left who are beginning to realise that that is probably the way that the left can, make their, can play their part in this. And it's something that has to happen. It has to happen soon. Your last question, basically, are there people on the left who've been reluctant to get involved in this? I think there have. And I think it's going to mean, I think once you have some people on the left, trade union officials, people from the labor movement standing up and they are increasing to Manuel Cortes. You've mm-hmm. got um, a number of other people who are starting to to stand up and speak out on this because we can see the imminent danger and, and the danger this poses to a future labor government. Um, I think the more that those people stand up, the more it will become acceptable for people who support Jeremy Corbyn, who want to see you know a left wing labor government to stand up and, and join this fight. At the moment, it's dominated. By a specific uh, kind of world outlook, I think. Um, you know, you've got George Osborne, you've got Tony Blair, you've got Trucco Amana. And, you know, we're all in agreement. We think Brexit is a bad thing. But, you know, where we want to go, what Europe looks like, how we want to achieve it, and sometimes what ulterior motives, our ulterior motives are, um, can be very varied. But I think we now have to say, oh, look, we don't really care what your ulterior motives are. You know, you should just kind of come clean on those. But actually, Europe is such an important issue. We can't, be, we, can't be sucked. we can't not do anything because of that. We've got to do something. And I think that's where an increasing number of people are starting to come to. And the more that happens, the more I think we can begin to build a grassroots movement to, to, to play its part in a pincer movement with the other stuff that's going on in the courts, in, in, yeah. in, in Parliament and
2: so on. You said you think that that will probably come from the left. It's always been the left that have been good at organising at grassroots level, of course. But would you work cross-party with people like Vince Cable, Ken Clark?
1: If it's to stop... You know, destructive um, changes to legislation that the government are putting forward completely. And look, look I, you have to be quite clear here. My vision of Europe is probably very different to Ken Clark's and yes. Anna Soubry's. Yeah. Nonetheless, the one thing that we are convinced of is that uh, the European Union and working together with our, our European partners is better than not, mm-hmm. and better than the alternatives that Brexit is proposing or potentially proposing Um, but at the same time I also know that Ken Clark, Hannah Soubry, um, George Osborne have been the architects of austerity, of the Mm. bedroom tax, Mm. of deeply destructive policies which I think have led in part to so many people and especially working-class people voting for Brexit because they had no stake in our country, no stake in the economy so they wanted change and they are asked you know, in that referendum in 2016, June 2016, are you happy? Do you want to see change? Of course they were going to vote for change. Mm. Of course they were, weren't happy. So they are partly responsible and, and I accept that. But at the end of the day, you know, when you are fighting uh, for for a, something that's so important, you you make allies. Um, but you go into that any kind of a, any kind of um, working together situation with your eyes wide open. Also being quite clear to them, you know, it's not acceptable as far as I'm concerned to go into Europe, go back into Europe, go back into the EU, and business as usual. Mm. You know, the, some of the kind of, I would say, some of the neoliberal tendencies of Europe. And I don't think New- Europe is a, an entirely neoliberal entity. It's, 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 it's promoted trade liberalisation. It has done some obnoxious things like Greece and the, you know, the effects on Portugal and Spain and southern economies. But it's also got, you know, great environmental policies. It's also, you know, tackled Google. Now, these aren't the actions of an entire neoliberal entity. But mm. nonetheless. It needs to change, yeah. and I don't know. Where, I don't know quite whether the changes that people on the left, like myself, would like to see in Europe are necessarily the ones that they would like. But let's stay in first of all, and then let's have that fight inside of Europe. Yeah,
2: you, you mentioned the working class vote and the, the fact that you think it was almost a protest vote to, for, for some people.
1: But for some people, I'd, I'd say i say for some people, the question was: Are you happy? Yeah. <laughs> are you yeah. happy?
2: But but it's often been said that that's why Labour have, are in a tricky position. Mm. Um, because there are, there are lots of traditional labour voters who who wanted to leave the eu was is labour then to blame for not explaining to those to those supporters to those voters why it is potentially ruinous for for them for working class people for people on lower incomes that we when we do leave the eu
1: um I think the whole political class and the whole political establishment over the last thirty years has a responsibility for this and that includes New Labour. Mm-hmm. You know, we bought into an economic philosophy that kind of exploded in our faces back in two thousand and eight and hasn't hasn't you know, and, and a lot of people say, Oh you no, know, well the you know, austerity is was a terrible thing and has a part to play in this. But for for, for vast swathes of this country, working class communities, um, you know, they had austerity throughout the eighties. <laughs> And 90s as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, to simply say that this is the fault of the Labour Party, or the, it's, I think there's, it's a, there's a collective responsibility of the political establishment. And people, I think, you know, when you look at the kind of negative headlines that came out over in throughout the 90s and noughties um, in the papers, the kind of general consensus that Europe was a big bloated organisation sucking out our, our hard-earned taxes and not mm. giving us anything in return... Then you ask people the question about, are you happy? Do you want to be part of the EU? With all of that negative media there, with all the issues around immigration, and you can begin to see why people may well think, well, actually coming out of this, some kind of change, any change must be better than what is currently on on offer. I don't think that's necessarily Labour Party's fault. However, what I do think is important is to look at what happened in the election result of 2017. And that shows that when you offer people hope, when you offer people something different, change a positive change which the labour manifesto and which jeremy corbyn did you can win people over i saw that here in norwich south i saw people who were ukip voters who said i was going to vote ukip they're not standing a candidate here i'm thinking of voting Theresa may but i love your manifesto yeah and you're you know and some of them i think your leader means what he says some of them weren't so sure about him but we love your policies people got them they were different and, and i think you know you can you can negate the whole Question about Brexit or, or not Brexit? When you actually have domestic politics here, which offer real change and real hope, and I think that's the key thing um, that the Labour Party should take away from the election—that we don't have to carry on on the trajectory that was set before Jeremy Corbyn, before that election, which is about blaming immigrants, about austerity, about more hardship. That doesn't necessarily have to be the the you know the music that that currently that currently you know inhabit.
2: Yeah, it's difficult to find hope to sell to. To people with regard to Europe at the moment, though, isn't it? Because the, the the hope that Remainers have, of course, is that we can somehow get out of this, uh, get out of Brexit. But th- there's no hope of that, really, is there?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I I would have said, you know, three or four months ago that the soft Brexit was the best we could possibly hope for. But I think that election, the last general election, was a game changer. Mm. Um, people say it wasn't a Brexit election. There's lots of results, lots of uh, work and. A um, research coming out and say that, that actually, possibly wasn't the case. That mm. actually, that Brexit was for many people, it was a tactical vote. I think something like six and a half million people potentially tactically voted at the last election so to you stop that, that Tory juggernaut. On do you Brexit. think that
2: people voted Labour? Then we've spoken on this pod before about um, the Labour manifesto and, and in positive terms and there was obviously votes won on the back of that. But do you also think that that people voted Labour because they thought that that they would offer a better sort of Brexit than the Tories would if there had to be Brexit?
1: There's a collage of of reasons, I think, as to why people voted Labour, and and they differed, I think, um, in different parts of the country. Um, What I would say is, before the election, you have to remember where we were. Labour was tanking in the polls. Jeremy Corbyn was one of the most unpopular party leaders in modern history, mm. um, the zeitgeist was that Theresa May was going to smash this election and all the signs were that we were going for, you know, after the, the I think the Lancaster House speech, we were going for a really hard Brexit and yeah. people were worried. Even people, I think, who voted leave were worried and people didn't want to hand her that kind of power for that kind of trajectory, that kind of course. And so consequently, a lot of people looked at what was an offer and saw an opportunity with the way that the Tories behaved, with the manifesto that was on offer, with Jeremy Corbyn uh, performing above their expectations, all those factors. And then you throw in the European dimension, the Brexit dimension, and it gave so many people a reason to vote Labour. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened. So that now means that we now ha- we can now adjust again our options on Europe. Before, it was about stopping that Tory hard, hard Brexit juggerna- juggernaut. sorry. But I think now that we've stopped it in its tracks against all the expectation uh, in some ways by that election result, maybe now people can say, well, hold on a second. Maybe soft Brexit isn't the only option here. Maybe there is an option here to actually begin to challenge the very, you know, the very underpinnings of what this government is trying to do and to reverse it. Now, you have the outcome of that referendum result and some people will say, well, you've got to respect The referendum result. But look, democracy is about constant change, constantly challenging. That is the strength of democracy. Uh, You know, just because Trump won uh, an election victory as president on the back of repealing Obamacare, does that mean that those hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans campaigning against the repeal of Obamacare should just sit back and go, well, he won and he's got a mandate, we'll let him get on with it. No, it doesn't. And some people say, well, referendums are different. No, they're not. They're democratic instruments, and democracy is about constantly challenging. I wouldn't expect Nigel Farage to sit back in his chair and go and retire if he'd lost that that referendum. You'd expect him to be out there campaigning again. We're entitled to do that. It's a critical junction. We haven't left the EU, and everyone has the right in a democracy to campaign and try to convince people to change their minds. I think that's right. I think it's proper. And given what's at risk... Potentially the biggest issue since the Second World War. I think it's incumbent on all of us to kind of you know take part in that.
2: So, do you think then, from the position we're in now, do you think that the sensible thing to do would be to continue with the negotiations and then go back to the country with a second referendum at the end of it?
1: A ratification vote. Mm. I think that's that would ultimately that should have always been the way that it. You know, you, yeah. do you want to incite in or out of the EU? Yes, no. Do you agree with the deal that's been struck? You know, and I think that should all that David Cameron and George Osborne should have factored that in, but they didn't because they expected a the cakewalk and it didn't happen, and their hubris has landed us where it has. Um, I think that that's the end game, but to get to that point, there's going to have to be, as we've been talking about, a lot of work in between there, a lot of grassroots campaigning, a lot of you know, political space made, not just for politicians but for people who kind of feel their hands are tied by um, the the Brexit outcome, to, to say actually it is fair and proper, as we begin to see the deal that is transpiring, as we begin to see what it's going to actually mean and look like an increasing number, of, as we begin to see the impact of it on our economy, which we can already see yeah. people will begin beginning to think actually, was this such a good idea are there alternatives, are there changes that we could do inside the EU on terms of freedom of movement, in terms of uh, the ability um, for people to come and go in this country and work so... <laughs> I can't remember your question. What was your question? I've gone off, <laughs> I've gone off on a rant. But you said well, something about... Should I, we
2: have, an, should we have another, another vote at the end of the
1: uh, you, Do you know what? Yes. But I think we need to shut up about this now. Because if, you, if that's all we bang on about, I can guarantee you won't get it. Mm. Um, it's pissing people off, to be quite frank. Mm. I think what we now need to do is the hard work in between to get to that point. Mm. Um, I think people need to stop whinging. And they need to start organising. And they need to start getting practical and they need to go beyond. I mean, I think the stuff that's going on inside in in the courts, which Gina Miller has been part of and and stuff that's going on various cases. I think that's important as well. But this needs to be a multifaceted approach. And I think simply sitting back and bemoaning the outcome of the referendum, bemoaning the terms on which it was fought, bemoaning this, bemoaning that. No, stop it. Let's just get, you know, roll our sleeves up and work towards that ratification vote but also making sure we can change the mood music in this country so that if there is a if they if we hold a second re- referendum today there's a good chance we lose it we might just scrape through mm. i don't want to scrape through you we want it to be a convincing vote against leaving the eu yeah it's a tricky
2: one for you though because your leader doesn't think the same i don't think
1: yeah and you know look this is one of a lot of people might listen to this and think you know you're you're just being you're you're, you're ruining our chances in government you're you're undermining Jeremy Corbyn. Look. look we are a democratic socialist party, yeah? a social democratic party, a democratic socialist party. And one of the things that myself, you know, I've always I've always been involved with campaign. for know Pete Wills when campaign for Labour Party democracy and for many of us on the left. One of the things throughout the kind of the new Labour years was the shutting down of the ability to be able to have real debate and to give people real power and to be able to speak. And I think one of the downsides of that is that on the left, we have in many ways forgotten how to debate constructively and still remain comrades. We're all heading in the same direction. Some of us just have different ways for getting there. We all want the same outcome ultimately. And uh, that's uh, you know, a Labour government. But the question many of us will be asking ourselves is, even if we can get a Labour government, yeah, and you have the calamity of Brexit, what kind of Labour government will you have? What kind of change will you be able to make? And that's the thing that I'm thinking about, and many other people are as well. And I think when you understand that, I think it's right and proper that people within our party have constructive, positive debate about how we take this forward and about how we make those changes. You know, and there's the old saying, you know, from... Uh, from uh, antithesis and thesis comes synthesis, and you get a stronger position. And I think we shouldn't be afraid in the Labour Party of making sure that on one of the most critical issues in our lifetimes, that we make sure that we have the right policy in the right position. Mm. And I think you know that conference should be interesting because I yeah. imagine that Europe will come up, mm-hmm. and you know let's have that full and frank debate there, and let's get the policy. At the moment, you know the front bench is in effect going against party policy on this issue. Um, well, let's have conference. Let's see what policy comes out with. But then you'll have the arguments from people saying, "Well, that's party policy." Brexit. The Brexit referendum was a national referendum, and well, we've had a general election since then, which I think has muddied the waters on that referendum. Mm-hmm. So let's have the debate. Let's not be afraid of that debate. Uh, and let's, you know, I think it's 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 acceptable for members uh, uh, and MPs and, and members of the party and beyond. To influence where policy is. That's what a democratic party does. You don't have positions based in aspic. That's mm. not how dem- our democratic organizations work. So I think it's right. And no one's undermining Jeremy Corbyn. No one's undermining the front bench. We're passionate about these issues. I know, for example, that Jeremy and many others, myself included, think nuclear weapons are a pretty bad idea. Nonetheless, we have party policy, yeah. as, I, as I discovered at last conference. <laughs> yes. I'm open, for. I'm not doing anything on the uh, on the old auto queue this year. Um, but, you know, that's the th- these are the kind of intricacies, the delicacies of democracy. And it's, it's about feeling your way through it. And it's not acceptable to just say, here's policy. That's how it is. You know, if that was the way, if that was the case, we'd still have, you know, public floggings you know, yeah. <laughs> because nothing would change. <laughs> Quite. OK, um, just
2: finally, this is another thing that our listeners and our readers often often want to get to the bottom of. And of course, you don't know the answer, but um, did Jeremy vote to Remain?
1: I think he... But he said he did. And Jeremy Corbyn is not a liar, um, as far as I know. And so I think he did. And if Jeremy Corbyn said he voted for Remain, I think he would have voted for Remain. And I mean, it's, it's it will be one of the great... I guess I'm sure maybe in, you know, centuries or decades to come, it may be a big question that historians ask. I don't know. But I would say, given the fact this is a man that has stuck by his, his long-held and cherished beliefs and principles for 30, 35 years. That takes quite a lot of moral courage and integrity. And, and I kind of think if he said he did it, he did it. Now, but that would have been and, a
2: change of heart to some extent, wouldn't well, it?
1: You, I, I think, but I, I, know, I know Jeremy quite well. And whatever people say that he, you know, he, it was a half-hearted, lukewarm kind of Brexit campaign, the reality is the Brexit camp, the, 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 the Remain campaign I thought was appalling. I did most of my stuff for another Europe. It just, I just used to have my hand in my, you know, head in my hands a lot of the time. And I can understand why he perhaps didn't want to be on a platform with certain members of the government and, and certain former leaders. I get all of that. Um, I don't think that means he was lukewarm. I just think it was it was just a reflection of the campaign that was wrong. But ultimately, you know, look, Jeremy Corbyn said that he couldn't find a seat on Richard Branson's trains. Um, he was then ca- called out as a liar by Richard Branson. But it's now transpired that actually when you look at the CCT footage on those trains, there are people sat on the floor after carriage after carriage. And the only seats that you can see Jeremy Corbyn walking through are actually the reserve seats. So Jeremy Corbyn was telling the truth. So I think when it comes to the issue of did he vote Leave or did he vote Remain, for someone who campaigned for Remain, I don't believe that Jeremy Corbyn would then go into a, a, you know, a voting booth and vote Leave. That's not his style. That's not how he works. That's not how he rolls.
2: And he's also the type of chap who won't sit in a reserved seat. Uh, very much so, and he won't sit in first class either. Clive, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time, and we wish you all the
1: best. Thank you very much, Richard. brexiteer of the week
2: welcome back, Steve has rejoined me hi Steve hello it 's
0: time to once again crown our brexiteer of the week and once again there is a large pool of candidates which i've reduced uh, in Miss World style into the uh, into the bottom three coming in third Patrick minford uh, now Patrick minford is an academic he is uh, an economist is a brexit economist and he has uh, issued a report over the weekend uh, not checked by any of his peers it it would seem um, but that was good enough for BBC, Channel 4, Sky News to give him loads of airtime to say that a hard Brexit would boost the British economy by £135 billion uh, annually. Now, everyone is taking this with a large pinch of salt uh, perhaps because Patrick Minford's uh, greatest Hits, um, he was Patrick Minford, was a big favourite of Mrs Thatcher's, by the way. In 1990, he wrote in the Economic Review uh, that the poll tax would be a big vote winner. He said the community charge has got much to commend it. Opponents are underestimating the political maturity of the electorate. Mm. Uh, and last year, he uh, he wrote a very happy, clappy article about Brexit for the Sun in advance of um, the referendum. He did say that his version of a hard Brexit would have one small side effect for the UK. He said, it seems likely that we would mostly eliminate manufacturing. Ah. So just a small... We'll just get rid of manufacturing. But just Put that on the bus. Yeah, exactly. Number two is the nicotine-stained man-frog, Nigel Farage, who's a, obviously a Yep. F- uh, he has made it known, or his friends have made it known, uh, that they don't like the idea that Nigel Farage, when the Brexit the movie is made, he will only appear in newsreel footage, whereas actors (laughs) will play Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore. A Faragist told the Mail on Sunday, and this is a quote, it's ridiculous, Nigel is Hollywood, Banks and Wigmore are just spear carriers. Uh. Now, it's quite good that a follower of Nigel Farage has learned a second insult involving Spears, for one thing, so congratulations on that. But I just love the image of Nigel Farage being like Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard. I'm still big, it's just the UKIP vote that got small. Number one Brexiteer, biggest Brexit idiot of the week, is the brain of Brexit. Daniel Hannan, he's an MP, Tory MP, sorry, uh, MEP, I'm sorry, uh, he wrote a column in the Sunday Telegraph this week, a uh, very pro-Brexit column, which ended with the words, truly we are beyond the realm of reason. Now, what was truly beyond the realm of reason was what he tweeted out a couple of hours after that uh, Sunday Telegraph column came out. He tweeted, when they make the film version of the Trump presidency, I want this guy to st- play Steve Bannon. Now, who, whose picture did, he, did the, accompany that tweet? Oh, who did um, he
2: select? I, I think maybe Samuel L.
0: Jackson. It wasn't this close. It was Philip Seymour Hoffman. Ah, Now, Philip Seymour Hoffman would 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 be a fantastic uh, Steve Bannon, were it not for the fact that Philip Seymour Hoffman died, uh, very sadly, in February 2014. But, you know, maybe Nigel Farage, who is Holly, who is Hollywood, is. could give it a go instead. So Daniel Hannan is the Brexiteer of the Week. I would say that if we could bring, if Brexit could bring Philip Seymour Hoffman back to life, I would be immeasurably more keen on Brexit because I did love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm afraid that um, it won't. Oh, (laughs) well, they never to be in to their credit. They never put that on the side of the bus. They never promised that. No. That
2: was the new European podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, do go out and buy the paper. There's lots of good stuff in there as always. Lots of politics, lots of Brexit, of course, and also lots of arts and culture. I'm taking another week off next week, so I'll be leaving you in the safe hands of Steve Anglesey. Until then.